0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance, shattering barriers to treatment, survival, and recovery. People with schizophrenia can recover and thrive. More at WeCanThrive.org.
1: Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherland support WHYY and its commitment to the
2: production
3: of programs that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Dacher Keltner had just finished working out when he saw the text from his sister-in-law. Can you come here as fast as possible? He realized immediately what was going on. His younger brother, Rolf, had been battling colon cancer for two years, and he was dying. Dacher had known this moment would come, and yet it was unimaginable.
2: My brother was part of every moment of consciousness in my life of how I look at the world and how I laugh and how I see the humanity in other people and how I love to go hiking. He was just part of my life.
3: Decker is a psychologist and researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. He picked up his wife and daughters, his mother, and then they rushed to his brother's bedside. As he sat there, he was overcome with an emotion that caught him by surprise. He describes this in his new book. I sensed
2: a light radiating from Rolf's face. It pulsated in concentric circles spreading outward, touching us as we leaned in with slightly bowed heads. The chatter in my mind, clasping words about the stages of colon cancer, new treatments, lymph nodes, and survival rates faded. I could sense a force around his body, pulling him away, and questions in my mind. What is Rolf thinking? What is he feeling? What does it mean for him to die? A voice in my mind said, I feel awe.
3: And listening to this and reading it, I was wondering, was the feeling of awe stronger than all the other emotions the potential terror, the panic, the sadness?
2: Well, that was what was profound about this, Mike, and was that, you know, cancer is horrifying. It it really does horrible things to the body, as I had seen firsthand in emergency room visits with my brother. I had anticipated this loss once we knew it was terminal for months, and so I was just filled with sadness and panic at the thought of life without my brother. But in that moment, in particular of watching his life, his physical life end, um, it was pure awe and wonder. And, you know, at these questions of like, what is it like to die? What will my life be like without him? What, what is life? What is a brother? What, what is our, our time here on earth about? And so I was really filled with mystery and wonder and awe in a, a real pure way.
3: Pure awe, the sometimes overwhelming emotion that can hit us when we're looking at a beautiful night sky, the ocean, the Grand Canyon, or maybe even when we're watching an ant diligently carrying a crumb from point A to point B. We feel awe when we encounter mysteries, when we're humbled in the face of courage, beauty or nature. But why do we feel awe and how does it change us and the way we experience the world? On today's episode, a conversation with psychologist Dacher Keltner about his new book, Awe, the new science of everyday wonder and how it can transform your life. Decker is one of the leading voices in the field of positive psychology. He's written several books. He collaborated with the creators of the Pixar movie Inside Out. His latest book, On Awe, digs deep into the research on this emotion and explores its impact on our bodies and minds. When we feel awe, what is happening in our bodies, in our minds? What are some of the mechanisms that get kicked off?
2: For a long time, science had ignored awe because there was this assumption that you can't measure it. We can't pinpoint it in the body or the mind or what's happening. But in point of fact, it's actually one of the easiest emotions to measure, which really has struck me uh, in studying it for 15 years. So what happens in our our minds and bodies when we feel awe, people see an amazing nature video or a, a video of somebody who's morally inspiring, you know, the Dalai Lama or they read an inspiring piece of poetry or hear awe-inspiring music, and what happens is our sense of self and ego becomes small. We have a feeling that we are connected to larger things, right? A community, a purpose, uh, a movement, an ecosystem. We feel really kind, you know, and we've done a lot of research showing when you feel awe, you just want to help other people. You share very instinctively. And then in our bodies, there's this remarkable suite of responses where, and you probably would, you know, sense this, Mike. And when we feel awe, oh, right, we're moved, we tear up, we we get tingles in the back of our arms and our neck, the goosebumps. Uh, parts of the brain involved in the ego are really quieted; they deactivate. And then I study the vagus nerve, which is this large bundle of nerves that starts at the top of your spinal cord, goes into your body through your gut. It calms heart rate, deepens breathing, helps with digestion, and awe activates the vagus nerve. So there's a pretty interesting mind-body profile of awe that's actually really good for us.
3: What do we know about the trigger of it, the kind of like chain (laughs) of events, you know? So my eyes take in something, my ears take in something, like what happens next? What sets off this amazing chain of events?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, that's, the in some sense, the big question, right? Uh-huh. Uh, I've told you, well, awe in the abstract is about when we encounter vast mysteries. You know, when I saw my brother there lying on his side, the vastness of his life and my life was, was striking, and it was mysterious what was going on. But what, what can we say more about what really produces awe? And we did um, research on 26 different countries where we just asked people, Tell us, you know, what made you feel awe. Write a story about it. And this is far-reaching countries like Japan and China and India and Brazil and Mexico and the U.S. and Poland, all over the world. And what we found is in terms of triggers of awe, there are really eight sources of awe you can find around the world. People's moral beauty or kindness and courage. Nature. Collective patterns of movement, right, in humans or when we're singing in choirs or cheering at an athletic event, music, visual design, uh, spiritual practice, right? Meditating or praying. And then finally, big ideas, right? Whoa, it's all capitalism, you know? And then interestingly, the life and death cycle. When I see life begin, you know, the birth of a child, and when I see it end, that is also a trigger of awe around the world. So I call these the eight wonders or triggers of awe.
3: In Dacher's research, people most often reported feeling awe at moral beauty, observing acts of kindness and courage in others. I asked Dacher how exactly awe creates the reaction that we experience, the chills, the tears, the curiosity.
2: William James, in his great book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, grappled with this too. You know, he had this mystical experience, believe it or not, taking laughing gas. <laughs> <laughs> and he fell to the ground and he was like, oh my God, I see the fundamental it! I'm having this transcendent experience of awe. And, he, and then he started to figure out, like, like you asked, Mike, and very intelligently, like what unfolds? How do we figure out the process, the unfolding process of awe? And, and we've done a lot of research on that. And what happens is you become really quiet. Your sense of self fades. You know, I, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, you know, I am nothing in a moment of awe. You feel connected to, to larger systems around you, larger collectives, ideas, pieces of music, ecosystems. So that starts to unfold. And then in the body, what happens is parts of the brain called the default mode network, um, which are really where the ego is activated, uh, tend to quiet. They deactivate. We get activation of oxytocin in some studies, which is a neuropeptide that helps you connect to others. We have activation of what I said with the vagus nerve, which is this big branch in our chest that helps us open up to other people. So it's it really is, in, in some sense, what unfolds is I engage with others. I connect to others. I become part of something larger than me. And it also tracks shifts in our body's physiology.
3: It almost felt like it puts us in touch with some more primitive or raw version of ourselves that is less – of the construct that we make about this is who I am and this is what my life is about and blah, 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 blah. It's like all this chatter yeah. we have in our head. Yeah. And suddenly we are reduced to this
4: yeah. basic
3: core that is really beautiful and, yeah. and not as developed as the narrative or all the other things that we, we say to ourselves.
2: Yeah. What a spectacular question. And Mike Mike, and I wish we had the science to really capture that. But, you know, there is thinking, you know, a lot of our daily life is dominated by what I in the book call the default self, the ego. Right. Mm -hmm. Am I what are my goals? What's my status? What do people think of me? How much money do I have in my bank account? Am I a prominent person? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Aldous Huxley called it the nagging, interfering, you know, me or neurotic self. Um, and there's a lot of thinking that 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 is a cultural construct. We need it to to survive in the world, the self, the ego. But it really is predominant today in our kind of globalized world of selfies and Instagram and thinking about me. Awe quiets all of that. It just diminishes the voice of the ego and the self. And what we suddenly experience and see the world through, and I like your your phrasing, Mike, in a lot, which is the raw self, the core self of, I am part of a collective. I am a we. I am part of this group, this community, this neighborhood. And that's also vital to human evolution and survival. And awe opens our eyes to our inner connectivity and our sense of, of collective, which is really important in today's era where, you know, 30% of Americans, 40% feel really lonely And a little moment of awe makes you feel like I'm part of something larger.
3: There is something paradoxical about all of this, though, in that we tend to dislike the idea that we are just one tiny particle in this vast universe, (laughs) right? And we're just like a million other people who've come before us and will come after us. That's not something we tend to gravitate toward, usually. (laughs) But then in this moment, it also feels weirdly wonderful.
2: Yeah, you know, there are many paradoxes to awe. It's a complicated emotion. And you've pinpointed one of the striking ones, which is awe does come with this sense of man. I don't really matter that much. I'm mm-hmm. a part of the universe. I'm a little little spot on the earth. We're just as one planet in this giant, you know, universe. I'm part of history. There are nine billion people, or whatever. I'm just insignificant. But you know what's striking, Mike, and and we've done research on this. And moments of awe through nature and moral beauty and music and the like do make us feel small and humble, but in many ways our data suggests that's liberating. We don't feel the nagging neurotic voice of the ego. We feel open to being part of, you know, what Jane Goodall said about awe, which is being amazed at being part of things larger than the self. I'm part of a family or a neighborhood or a culture or a political movement or an idea. Um, And that, paradoxically, as the self fades, we feel empowered. We feel a sense of inspiration. So it is paradoxical, uh, but I think important for our times.
3: When does awe become truly transformative? You have a few stories in your book about Mm. awe that really changed people's life. When does that happen?
2: Well, you know, we always have to think about emotions like awe uh, on continua, right? There are many Mm -hmm. different kinds of experiences of awe, as we've been talking about. They differ in their intensity, right? Um, They differ in their power of transformation. And throughout history, there are transformative experiences of awe. Julian of Norwich writing about her bliss and awe in her love for Jesus as, you know, in the spiritual traditions— Charles Darwin had many awe experiences in the five and a half years on the the Beagle where he was just awestruck by nature and he started to see the process of evolution, right? Those are transformative, life-changing, history-changing experiences of awe. And what happens with those is I think you just totally dissolve and see some fundamental truth about reality, your own life, nature, spirituality, music, etc., But I will say, Mike, and you know, in our our work, there are also these more softer versions of awe, what I call everyday awe. Those are transformative too, right? When we feel a little moment of awe in marveling at the clouds or the rain or the laughter of children or a piece of music, you know, there are life transformative epiphanies of awe, really serious forms of awe. And then there's softer versions that are transforming our minds in subtler ways that are just as important.
3: When we're talking about this everyday kind of awe, what are, the, what are the benefits of seeking that out?
2: This was one of the real surprises in our research. Um, we did a, a kind of research called the Daily Diary Study. Mm-hmm. And in this kind of study, it, it just takes advantage of people's love of journaling and writing about the emotions of the day. And every night uh, for two weeks or so, we would ask people, hey, did you have an experience of awe? And if so, write about it, right? And we did this research in China and Japan and Spain and the United States and different countries. And uh, over the course of a couple of weeks, people say they had experiences of awe about two to three times a week. And that really surprised us, right? Or me, too. Like, wow, awe isn't just that rare moment when, you know, you hug the Dalai Lama or, you you know, you... (laughs) fall out of a plane and survive or whatever it is. It's around us. It's every day. And the benefits of that everyday sense of awe that I think you can cultivate almost at any moment in the day are numerous, right? It makes people in our research feel less stress about the daily hassles of life. So suddenly you're in line and the cappuccino maker is not, not going fast enough. You don't, you're not as stressed out about it as much, right? Uh, that everyday awe makes you feel more collaborative with the people around you. It makes you feel like you have more time. It's good for your body. So I think one of the, the big surprises in our research is how common awe is and how often we find it in everyday things, and how good it is for us to do that.
3: That's Dacher Keltner. He is a psychologist and researcher at UC Berkeley, where he is the faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center. We're talking about awe, and we also wanted to hear from you. When was the last time you experienced awe?
0: In Mexico, January, three or four years ago.
3: That's Maddie Monroe, who woke up before dawn to walk down to the beach to marvel at the stars.
0: The sky was like this Crayola midnight blue and impossibly clear. There was no light pollution. The planets were lined up, and it was just stunning. Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, they were impossibly bright and distinct. You could see the stars just absolutely clearly. And I remembered, you know, light from stars can take billions of years to reach us. So the sky we see is a picture of the past that has not existed for a long time. And I had this very clear sense of the vastness of space and time. And I thought, we live on a planet. We're barely anything at all. And nothing seemed important, not work, not money, not perceived conflicts with friends or family in that moment of clarity, when nothing was important, I felt free.
3: The last time I was awestruck was listening to my daughter, who's five, quietly sing to herself a little song. I love my mommy, I love my daddy, I love my family, and I love myself. (laughs) And just thinking about how wow, I'm her mommy and she is herself and we are in the universe together. And she's so full of love that on her own, by herself, she's singing about it.
5: The last time I experienced a moment of awe was probably when I saw Avatar, The Way of Water in theater. Uh, I know that sounds a little bit corny, but I found myself just utterly fascinated and blown away by the fact that I was seeing A completely photorealistic alien world that seemed so foreign, so just otherworldly, yet at the same time so relatable and realistic. The total immersion in this world that, frankly, was just created in the minds of other human beings and was then somehow taken through that creative process and then turned into something that could be experienced by other people was just so inspiring to me. And and it just really got me thinking of new ways to explore my own creativity, my own passions, and, and it really lit a spark in me.
3: We always love to hear from you. Best way to stay in touch is to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at WHYY The Pulse. Coming up, more of my conversation with psychologist Dacher Keltner about his book on awe and the pursuit of this emotion in everyday life. You
2: know, just go someplace that is mysterious or a little surprising. Go there with a childlike sense of openness and wonder. Look around for the vast and the small. And people, even though they know they're doing this to find awe, feel a lot of awe. That's next on The Pulse.
3: This is the pulse, I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about awe with UC Berkeley psychologist and researcher Dacher Keltner. His new book is called Awe: The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Dacre says the feeling of awe has all kinds of benefits. Feeling less stressed, like you have more time, or like you're more open to collaboration with other people. And I was wondering if that's only the case when awe hits us organically or if we can make it happen. Can we manufacture the feeling though <laughs> you know it's it's like I can remind myself in every given day, you know look at the leaves, look at the clouds, do this, <laughs> do that, but then yeah. is that is that awe, or is that just me trying to be all like <laughs> right, <You laughs> look know, how and, pretty and, things are,
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, manufacturing awe, commodifying awe, et cetera, you <laughs> know and and is it really awe yeah. <laughs> And, and there, I really feel like we have the measures that we've talked about to say, was that an experience of awe or not? Did you tear up? Did you get goosebumps? Did you feel humble? Did you feel quiet? Did you vocalize? Like right? Whoa. Did your physiology change, as we've discussed? Um, but the question of manufacturing awe is a profound one, right? And in fact, cultures do this all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. Disneyland is about creating awe and national parks and musical symphonies and rock and roll concerts and sporting events, et cetera. We're always trying to manufacture awe because it's so powerful. Um, And then the question translates to the personal, which is, can I produce awe intentionally in my own life, right, given these benefits? And and I think that you can. You know, we've done research where we ask people – To go find awe on a weekly walk, we call it the awe walk, you know, just go someplace that is mysterious or a little surprising, go there with a childlike sense of openness and wonder, look around for the vast and the small, and people, even though they know they're doing this to find awe, feel a lot of awe, right? And in that study, it made them feel less stress on a daily basis, so... I think coming out of the science, I'm not sure I'd use the word manufacture. Mm-hmm. Maybe you might want to say design. Practice. Right? <laughs> yeah, practice. Go find some all. Listen to a piece of music that gave you goosebumps as a teenager. See what it does for you today.
3: Does it come harder as you age? Mm. I think back to when I was a kid, I I would – And I really only understood this when I was reading your book. Mm. When I was a child, I would lie down at night and I would think about the concept of eternity. And then I would start, like, (laughs) freaking myself out by thinking, like, and no, but in a good way. You know, it was like, and then we'll go to heaven and then we'll be there tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. Whoa. And then I would be like, you know. Mind blown. And then I would go to sleep. So that was (laughs) (laughs) – but it was like it came really easy when I was a kid. And now I I feel like you become more – I don't know. You just become used to things and all these miraculous things like whatever. The way our world works, that it's harder to find that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, I love your example, Mike. And my daughter, Serafina, when she heard the concept of infinity, just like you with eternity, you know, it kind of freaked her out. Like, oh, my God, it's infinite out there in space. (laughs) And she, too, like, had a little bit of panic and awe. Yeah. uh, You know, it's striking. People know that childhood and knowledge acquisition and figuring out how to live in the world is fueled by awe and wonder, You know, you you look at a child and they're asking these endless questions and exploring the world and figuring out the laws of physics and and psychology just to become, uh, you know, functioning human beings. And that's animated by powerful experiences of awe and the wonder that follows. And I, like you, uh, do sense in how the world works, to use your phrasing, that it's too scheduled, too much pressure, economic hardship. Too much focus on a small smartphone takes away the awe that we can feel and that we felt as children. And part of the reason I wrote this book is to say there's this magical emotion, awe, that if you just put things down and you, you look at a sunset or you, you listen to the, the play of children or you walk through the streets and notice the remarkable patterns of society, we can find it. Because I do feel we've lost sight of it in how the world works today. So urgently needed. And our kids need it too. I think we've taken it away from our kids. Too much testing and scheduling and doing things to put on their resumes. And, and uh, we need to get kids back to the wonder that was around earlier.
3: If we want to practice our ability to feel awe. Yeah what are some good ways to do this? You know, I'm, I'm looking as we were talking, I have my water bottle next to me and I've just been like looking at the bubbles that have formed on the wall of the water <laughs> bottle and they're beautiful, you know? They and are. They are really, really pretty. So anyway, what are some things like, what are some small things we could do? Mm. And I'm not, you know, I'm not getting goosebumps or anything like that, but I'm like, wow, this is really pretty. And it's helped me focus and quieted my mind. So how do we retrain ourselves to see mm. these beautiful things?
2: Thank you for that example, by the way. And, and I'm looking around looking at my water bottles like that <laughs> color of blue is remarkable. Really um,
3: pretty, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, you know, how do we find more awe on a daily basis given all of its benefits and given how hard we work and the pressures of today's life, etc.? I think the first thing is, is really what you hinted at, which is a shift in mindset, right? And what we have tested is just, you know, with respect to this mindset of awe is just stop and wonder about things and quietly observe. And then attentionally look to the small, right? Look around you and look at small things, the different shades of light in a, the color of water and then step back and look at vast things. Look at the horizon or the sky or a weather system. And I think that tends to produce awe of like stopping, observing vastness and smallness. Get into the mindset of awe. If you're physically walking, just wander a bit. Don't have a schedule. Don't use your Google Maps, etc. Just wander. Tell awe stories with some people. And this is amazing where You tell an awe story about seeing a whale, you know, breach and you get splashed or seeing, you know, a remarkable human being save another person's life. And telling those stories gives other people awe. Get out in nature. Listen to music in certain ways. Think about the first experience of awe you've had, you had as a child. What does that tell you about your life, right? There are these Simple practices where you can find more everyday awe that I'm uh, really excited about in terms of getting back to this basic emotion of our life.
3: is all connected to optimism? It seems like when you look at the world with a measure yeah. of wonder and awe, it seems to almost automatically make you feel more more optimistic about things.
2: It is, but I, you know, what I like about awe is that it is connected to a sense of purpose and agency and a little bit optimism, but in a some sense it is more animating of is wanting to figure out the mysteries of life, right? How can we create something that will help with famines or how do we deal with climate crises or how do we design something that really reduces polarization, the mysteries and problems of life. And awe really animates our sense of curiosity, our hunger to know and wonder. One of my favorite examples of this is when Newton and then Descartes discovered rainbows, you know, and they saw rainbows. They were like, how in the world does light bending through water create the color spectrum? And they're just awestruck, right? And it led them to math and color theory and physics to figure out the the geometry of rainbows. And so what awe does alongside optimism is it energizes us to take on the mysteries that we face right now and find knowledge and solutions.
3: If I'm practicing awe, if if I'm not feeling, you know— all the fields, as we say now, but if I'm not getting the chills or the tears or yeah. the goosebumps or or, but I'm feeling quiet, maybe or I'm feeling yeah. just a sense of peace, it sounds like that's still a good, a good thing, right? So it doesn't it doesn't sound like all the things have to be present for it to be like this. Boom! Here's the awe kind of experience. Right. And, you know, one
2: of the complexities when you write about an emotion or study an emotion as complicated as awe is there are many varieties. You know, Mm -hmm. it comes from nature and music. It differs in its intensity. And I write a lot about that. Um, And there are these quieter forms of awe that we have documented where it makes you quiet and humble. And when we're humble, we're not so taken with our own strengths, we're open to the marvels of the world and people around us. And it makes you have a sense of ease or peace or contentment. And, and, you know, Mike, and right now, a lot of social scientists are concerned with narcissism and ever striving to have more and to rise more in my own sense of self-assertion as really being a core pathway to anxiety and depression in our young people, right? Too much of this agitated, you know, pursuit of the self. And here we find a softer version of awe giving us a sense of quiet humility and contentment. And what good news that can be for the lives we lead today, that it makes us have a sense of peace, right? It makes us realize that we have enough. Um, And awe can bring that quieter, Sense of well being to us, which I think is urgently needed today.
3: You're right that we have a basic need for awe wired into our brains. And I kept wondering why, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, if you have to venture a guess, why we have this, what would you think it is?
2: You know, the kind of research that I do when you study the brain and the body and look at non-human primates and our mammalian relatives and universals to awe, which we've talked about. That's all part of trying to understand why did humans evolve this remarkable emotion of awe? What does it do for us? What benefits deeper in our evolutionary history does it bring us? And I think there are a couple. And one is there's an increasing consensus that we are a hyper-social collective species. It's our signature strength. To, to cooperate, to collaborate, to protect others, to share. And awe is a, a pathway to being a hyper-cooperator, or very social, right? It folds us into collectives and makes us strong. The second reason is more subtle, but I end the book on this, which is um, awe opens our minds to a system's view of life, where we suddenly see... We understand there's an ecosystem around me that I'm part of, that I can find resources in and protect. There's a social system around me that I'm part of, right? This group, this community, this neighborhood that I'm a small part of, and here's how I contribute to it. So I think that awe came online in our complicated mammalian and hominid evolution to make us members of strong groups, vital to our survival, and to make us see the world through this complicated systems lens that really ushers in all kinds of new knowledge that is really good for us as individuals and groups.
3: And then it would make sense that the most often we feel awe is when we observe moral beauty.
2: Exactly. You know, that starts to bring into focus, like, why am I? Why do I tear up when I see a video of a stranger helping another stranger? or acting courageously, right? Or overcoming obstacles. And the reason is, you know, that act is part of this moral system that I really need to bring into my life to be a a functioning member of a society.
3: Dacher Keltner is a psychologist and researcher at UC Berkeley in California, where he's the faculty director for the Greater Good Science Center. His new book is called Awe, the New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. We asked people about their experiences with awe, and here are some of the things we heard. A lot of them had to do with nature.
5: Hi, my name is Tom, and I'm a cameraman. Uh, I was on assignment in Swedish Lapland to film the Northern Lights. We were on day three of a filming trip 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle, and we hadn't gotten any images of the aurora and we were getting pretty nervous we were going to leave empty-handed. After nine hours and negative 30, suddenly the Northern Lights start going off. I scramble out of this yurt and look up and my brain just could not make sense of what I was seeing. My puny human brain just could not understand the phenomenon in front of me. We got it on camera and the lights continued for another 30 minutes or so but I distinctly remember being incredibly confused, like my mind was overloaded by what I saw. It was awesome.
6: I saw a red-tailed hawk take off
1: right in front of me, and it was so beautiful, and its wings spread so wide that for a minute, I couldn't breathe.
2: Having been an East Coast arborist, when I got the chance to go west, and climbed 280 feet up in a magnificent Coast Redwood. It left me totally awestruck.
3: Pulse reporter Grant Hill experienced awe while hiking in Wyoming. He had climbed up a mountain, turned a corner.
6: And there's just this like beautiful stream that's like ankle deep, you know, freezing cold, but just so blue. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is, this feels staged, but in a good way. <laughs> it, it, I think it feels staged in a way where no one could stage it. And it's just like so perfect. And then I turned my head, and there was a big moose with antlers
3: luckily at a safe distance. Pulse reporter Liz Tong felt all listening to some of the music that's part of the HBO series The White Lotus. It's an album of traditional Hawaiian music performed by a group called The Rose Ensemble. A lot of the songs started with just one or two voices, and then a few bars later, a couple more voices come in, then a couple more voices come in until... The song is sort of swelling and and reaching its peak and I just thought the music was beautiful and it was sad and sentimental and it was also filled with pride at the same time so just this incredible mix of emotions all wrapped up in this really beautiful music. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up an awe-inspiring view that really seems to change people.
1: I don't remember looking out the window and thinking bad things, being overwhelmed by the negative kind of things that are going on down here. I remember looking like, "Wow, this is this is a view that inspires you to to do good and to cooperate."
3: That's next on The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about awe and how this emotion affects us. More than 550 people have gone to space. When they return, many of them report feeling changed, their perceptions of the Earth, their relationships, their approaches to life are fundamentally altered by their time away from their planet. And awe seems to play a big role here. A few years ago, Irina Zorov reported on an effort to better understand this shift in perspective.
4: In the late 1970s, Frank White, a writer and sort of space philosopher, was flying from Boston to the West Coast.
2: I spent an enormous amount of time looking out the window.
4: His plane's route took him over Washington, D.C., which got him contemplating what was happening down there.
2: I was looking at the buildings and realizing that the people in those buildings were making laws for me, and yet it didn't seem relevant to me that they would be. It it seemed that uh, I had this overview, I had this bigger picture, And yet they were making laws from the surface.
4: He was thinking about human settlement in space a lot back then. And for him, this idea of the overview was revelatory. He had a bird's eye view of the Earth on his flight. But space settlers would have an overview of the entire planet. And that, he thought, would lead to more enlightened people who work together to protect their planet. He called it the Overview Effect.
2: It's a physical reality that leads to a philosophical reality.
4: With no space settlers to ask about it, he started calling up astronauts to see if they'd underwent something similar. It takes less time to reach space than it does to cook spaghetti. The astronauts lurch off the planet with incredible force, and eight and a half minutes later, in orbit, they become weightless. Here's Scott Perizinski He was an astronaut until his retirement in 2009. He's now a practicing physician.
0: I, I recall feeling just an extraordinary sense of euphoria that I had finally made it, that I was living out my, my boyhood dream.
1: You just
4: know, you're like, oh, I am in, I'm in space. That's Nicole Stott, who retired from NASA in 2015 and is now an artist.
0: But the most memorable part of that first day in space was when I got to look out the window for the first time.
4: That's Ron Guerin. He left NASA in 2013 and is now working with a commercial spaceflight company.
0: When all my tasks were over, I got to unstrap, float over to a window, and really taken in, it just took my breath away.
4: Imagine looking at your home, your neighborhood, your city, from a new vantage point. Many of us have experienced that on an airplane seven miles in the air. Zooming out like that can add new significance to familiar ground. Now zoom out some more, 250 miles up, to where the International Space Station orbits. Peering out the window there presents more than just a pretty view.
1: It was this kind of magnetic, you know, draws you in. You cannot, you can't float by a window without looking through it because you know how beautiful it's gonna be. You know you're gonna be surprised by something.
0: remember seeing one burst of lightning ignite and then at the tips of each of these fingers of lightning, subsequent bursts of lightning would erupt, and it was like a, a firework show going on right beneath the, the space shuttle and space station. One of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen in my life. The first thing that hit me in that moment is how thin the, the atmosphere is. And, you know, you're really hit with this sobering realization that that's, that paper-thin layer is keeping every living thing on the planet alive. And... Uh, You know, it it really makes you understand how fragile the the planet is.
4: The astronauts Frank White spoke to, which includes some of the ones you're hearing, saw their planet with fresh eyes. They'd all flown on planes, and Scott Peruzzynski had even climbed Mount Everest. But this was different. Being totally separated from the planet, seeing it as a sphere in space, somehow revealed new truths. They saw fragility, interconnectedness, beauty, the absence of political borders, just as White had predicted. Out in the vastness of space, instead of feeling insignificant or overcome by the environmental destruction they saw, they felt empowered. Nicole Stott.
1: I don't remember looking out the window and thinking thinking bad things. And that's kind of a weird thing to say, but I don't remember looking out the window and being overwhelmed by the negative kind of things that are going on down here. I remember looking like, wow, this is, this is a view that inspires you to, to do good and to cooperate.
4: Back on Earth, many astronauts become environmentalists, activists, do-gooders. Ron Guerin, for example, runs various humanitarian initiatives in the developing world. Scott Parazynski developing telemedicine in needy countries the way they tell it, They feel compelled to act, not just think, as global citizens, working to solve global problems. And they credit their time and space as a motivating factor. So let's consider again, what is this overview effect?
6: The overview effect is a set of psychological reactions that seems to occur when someone looks over a familiar landscape from afar.
4: That's David Yaden, a research fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. He studies self-transcendence, like deep meditation or mystical experiences. Yadin recently wrote a paper about the overview effect. While Frank White, who coined the term, approached the idea philosophically, Yaden wanted to take White's ideas into the realm of science, attaching this kind of out-there experience to known psychological research. The astronauts' accounts he read had a common denominator.
6: A lot of the astronauts seemed to be describing something that that sounded a lot like awe.
4: Yaden wants to use virtual reality to learn more about awe and the overview effect. In his office, he lets me be a guinea pig for his future tests. He puts virtual reality goggles and headphones on me. I'm just going to
6: attach them to the top.
4: When he turns on the program, I'm floating in a spaceship in orbit.
6: Okay, so you should be able to look around, including over your shoulder.
4: The door to the space capsule opens up with a little puff, (laughs) and I float out into space on a tether.
6: There's Earth coming into view. You can see half the planet. Lit by the sun, the other half still in shadow. There's the aurora borealis. So I think it's taking you out and around the moon.
4: Oh, that's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) The moon, massive and dark, passes in front of me. I see some meteors, the big blackness of space. And then everything starts to fade, and it's over. We debrief.
6: Right when you see Earth come into view, I think that's when usually people either gasp a little bit or say, wow, mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. You know, you, or, or involuntarily smile.
4: Yeah, I uh, think I was doing that. I was like smiling.
6: It, yeah, you there. were smiling.
4: <laughs> I feel lighter, pleasant, as if after a particularly enjoyable conversation or stroll. But I wouldn't call it awe. Aiden is hoping it works better on other subjects. That would allow his team to study awe more deeply, to understand how the overview effect differs from other types of awe. And how it relates to other self transcendent experiences. Elsewhere, researchers are looking into using virtual reality to produce something akin to the overview effect as a form of therapy. The astronauts say political leaders should be sent up there to hash out international disputes. Sometimes it takes a trip to outer space to reckon with life on Earth.
3: That story was reported by Irina Jorov a few years ago, and the researcher she talked to, David Yaden, is now at Johns Hopkins at their Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tang, Jad Slayman, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer, and we had additional engineering this week from Al Banks. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening.
1: My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer.
0: To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org.
3: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer?